Amos chapter 5 uh, is our text. We're talking about, I've been out of the pulpit for the last two weeks dealing with this, uh, this stuff and taking care of my family and, and uh, seeing to all this. And I appreciate Pastor Zach and Pastor Osvaldo as they uh, filled the pulpit and did a great job preaching. But uh, when, I, when, I, when this started, I was preaching a series on race and the church. And uh, we're going to continue that series. In my, in, in my uh, invite yesterday, I said that. We're going to preach, uh, we're going to continue the series on race and the church. I know that most of society, most of the church, most of, much of society has moved on from the racial issues. It was flash in the pan, and now they're moving on to other things, um, which I find very sad and very troubling, to be honest with you. Uh, but we're not. We're going to continue to address it and continue to preach about it and talk about it, but not from a political standpoint, not from a social justice standpoint, but from a biblical standpoint. And you'll see what I mean as we get into this. I will tell you this as well. Uh, we do Facebook Live, and Zach, uh, Pastor Zach interacts with people on Facebook. And uh, for those of you who were here during the first sermon, he erased a couple, few comments. I think he said 15. So get ready. Uh, I was called smug and I was called angry for preaching the message I did la at 9 o'clock. So it's the same message this time. So we'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> um, and I figured that because what we're going to be talking about is not, is not easy stuff. It's not little stuff. It's something that I believe hits every one of us. And in some way or the other. <laughs> and full disclosure, uh, this hit me, this whole matter hit me, uh, and hit me hard over the last almost seven years that we've had Gabriel and Michael because we have faced uh, racism towards our sons, and my sons have faced it physically themselves since they've been with us. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's a subject that needs to be addressed. So, uh, but we're gonna be talking about uh, race in the church over the next few weeks. And the message today, we're going to talk about two topics, two issues that are usually, um, that, that have, have become very popular today to discuss in some circles. And usually before each one of them, the, the descriptive white is put before them. We're going to take that away because usually when you say to white people, white guilt or white complicity, they shut you off and don't want to hear it. That's just the fact of the matter. And those of you who have white friends that feel that way, you know exactly what I'm talking about. People just shut you down as soon as, it, as, soon as you, they feel like you're attacking them, they shut down. So we're gonna take that away and we're gonna talk about guilt and complicity as it, come, as it, as it uh, deals with, as we deal with racism and the church, okay? Those two topics in this, in this message today and probably in the next two weeks after this. Now, the book of Amos is about social justice from a biblical perspective, and that's how we're going to be approaching uh, race and the church in this series, from a biblical perspective. Amos preached against injustice and oppression by the children of God, the chosen nation of Israel. Even Israel, the Jews who have been so persecuted down through history, and World War II was all about the Jews, right? It was all about exterminating the Jewish race. Um, that race of people, the Jewish race, was guilty of oppression, when they, uh, when they had their, their kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. And uh, Amos wrote this book, uh, divinely inspired by God, to address that issue. He said that God would never abandon his people, but that he would hold them accountable for their hard hearts and their inward but not outward morality. You see, they were a people that would hold to the law, the law of Moses, and they would hold it inwardly, but outwardly they wouldn't live that way. They wouldn't live out the ethics and the ethos of the law. They would live it within themselves, but they wouldn't treat other people that way. We have Christians that are the same way, aren't we? We live our lives, and we're very, we're very moral people. We're very biblical people, and we follow the, the, the teachings of the Bible as far as what we do and don't do in our lives. But do we live that word actively every day of our lives towards people in our community? Do we act with our attitudes and actions with the morality of the Bible and the, the ethics of the Bible and the teachings of the Bible as our guide? Or do we allow history 
or do we allow bigotry or just the way things have always been to be our guide rather than the word of God? <laughs> now, he said that God would judge them for their sins uh, of injustice to others as a society. In chapter 5, he says that the, he says, those who look for the day of the Lord but have a stained public morality, those who don't treat other human beings with equality will see darkness and not light. In other words, they'll be looking for one thing from God. They'll be looking for the great day of the Lord as a source of light and celebration, but it's going to, it would be a day of darkness and judgment for them instead because they had not been living out the word. He says that they'll be like a man who runs from a lion only to be confronted by a bear. I love that illustration. A man runs from a lion only to go around the corner and confront, be confronted by a bear. And he says, then he'll go to his house and lean up against the wall and there will, it, it will be as if there's a snake there. So you can't escape it. There's always going to be confrontation. There's always going to be a time of reckoning for your attitude and actions toward others. In other words, your sins will always be held to account with God. The heart of the book is found in, in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, where Amos writes, But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And what he was talking about in the primary application is the way God is going to deal with his people, but a secondary application, he's talking about how we should be treating others and how the Jews should have been treating those outside. They should have been treating them with justice and with righteousness. And we as followers of Christ should not be treated, should not simply be allowing God to work on us in our hearts and our lives and living uh, living good lives for ourselves to present that to God, we should be allowing that to change us from the inside out and living that life out to other people in such a way that we are shining the light of Jesus Christ and the teachings of his word. Not the way we interpret it, not the way we want it to be seen, but truly and honestly living the word the way it is. Let me tell you, I'll be very honest with you. This is going to be a hard message for a lot of people. Those of you who are watching us on Facebook, I hope you stick with us because this is going to be a hard message for many people to hear. I'm going to be very upfront about it. I'm not going to back down from saying things. I'm not going to back down from being honest about it. Uh, I've talked with a couple brothers after the service this morning and, and uh, they were talking about this and about this, the sermon and, and uh, they said, you know, Pastor, not many people, not many pastors will talk this way. Not many pastors will preach this because of they're afraid of losing people. They're afraid of losing money. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been here. This, I celebrated my 18th year as the pastor in New Life this past week. Uh, the same day that I entered the army, 38 years ago this week, is, a, is the same anniversary date of taking over the pastorate of this church 18 years ago. And in 18 years, we've had ups and downs. We've had incredible highs. We've had incredible lows. I've seen good people uh, turn bad, and I've seen bad people turn good. Um, and it's been, it's, it's been a war, man. But I'll tell you what, uh, and these last nine months for my family have been brutal. They've been absolutely brutal, capped off by these last 26 days with Aaron's health. But uh, I was taught by a man and a woman that God shines God's love and God's grace shines in the good times in life and in the bad times in life. And I would be betraying my faith and betraying my raising by my mother and father if I did not stand for God and stand for the principles of Jesus Christ in the good times and the bad. And I say that to say this, I'm the guy to preach this sermon because don't accuse me of being smug, don't accuse me of being angry. I mean this from the depths of, Vicki, it's from the depths of my heart. I don't care what you think of me. Aaron, when I first told that to Aaron, that I don't really care what people think of me, I am who I am. If you like me, you like me. If you don't, you don't. She's like, how can you be that way? It was when we were first married. She said, how can you be that way? I said, Aaron, I've learned that, I've learned that people, there, there are several different kinds of people in life. The most important ones that you want to hang on to in your life are people that are going to be true in good times and bad. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. The Bible says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, but the Bible also says faithful are the wounds of a friend. So a friend that will tell me about myself and still be my friend is someone I want in my life. But people who just want to pander to me and people who want something from me, well, those aren't true people. 
So I've learned that I'm going to be who I am and be who God calls me to be and say what God tells me to say, whether people like it or not. And if that means that, you know, people don't want to be around me or people don't want to listen to me, then that's what it means. But I've been called to serve him, not people. And that's where this message comes from. Racism has caused division in the church. Black, brown, and white are separated on Sunday. Is this of God? Is this the way we were designed to function? Is this truly being a city on a, set on a hill? Is this what the world will see and say, I need what they have? Isn't that what we say all the time? We're to live our lives in such a way. We're gonna, we, people say it, call it being a silent witness. People call it the social gospel. Um, whatever you want to call it, it's a matter of living your life in such a way that people see a difference in you. They see a difference in your life. They see a difference in how you approach life. They see a difference in the way you deal with adversity. They see a difference in, in, in what your goals are and what you work for in life and why you work for I've always said it's not a sin to be successful, but I believe it's a sin to be successful for your own desire. It's not a sin for God to bless you with great success, but if you give yourself the credit for that, well, now you're, now you're in sin because... God is the one that can bless you, and God is the one that can take it all away in the next breath. I, that was start, I mentioned it, messaged it in, mentioned it in the sermon in the first service. When I got that phone call uh, Father's Day morning at 12.15 a.m., the doctor expre expressed to me the urgency of the matter with Aaron. And, and you know, you never know how, whether people think you're exaggerating stuff or what, and during those two days that Erin was in such desperate condition because of her lungs, the doctor got into her face and said, Mrs. Chase, if you, well, she called her Erin, she said, Erin, if you don't breathe, you're going to die. I learned at that moment that life is precious and that it was re reinforced in me that we have to live our lives no matter what. I talked with my mom. My mom listened to me a lot during these, these days. I talked to her on the phone. And I said, you know, Mom, I've come to the conclusion God has given me a peace in my heart. It's that peace that goes beyond understanding. I said, I know that whatever happens with Aaron in the hospital, because there were two times, two issues. One was her lungs and the other was the infection in her abdomen. There were two issues that almost took her life, and that's not an exaggeration, literally almost took her life. <laughs> I, said, I said, Mom, I've prayed and I've talked to God about it. And I know that with the amount of people that are praying and the amount of people that are just, just on this matter and constantly calling me and messaging me and, and you know, Vicky was messaging with Aaron and, and Vicky, <laughs> Vicky's so funny, man, she would message me, say, I can't wait anymore, what's the update? And you know, when you've got people that know how to pray and know how to get in touch with God, well, my parents, I know my parents are prayer warriors. I said, mom, I just know that whatever happens, whether Aaron lives or dies, God is going to be glorified because God has a plan for Aaron's life. And if it's, you could ask my mom, I said that to her, if it's God's plan for Aaron to reach more people because of her death, then while it will break my heart, I'm okay because I know that God has a plan. When you, and I say that to say this, not to pat myself on the back, not to be arrogant, not to push myself up, but when you can have a peace about those kind of things and know that God is in control, then you can preach a message like this and know that it's from God, know that he's given it to you and you have to preach it or you'll be wrong. So I hope that that gives you an understanding of the fact that this is not from an arrogant place. This is not from a smug or angry place. This message comes from my heart, from my study of the scripture, and from what I, I may act like a kid, and I may be incredibly immature at times, but I'm 57 years old. I li I've lived a lot of life. I've seen a lot of things. I've experienced a lot, and I've seen a lot. And I've seen a lot in the church. And this message comes from my understanding of the scriptures, the teachings that God has given to me personally, listening to others, seeing what's going on, and just praying and asking God for wisdom. So I hope you understand that that's where this comes from. Is the world going to look at us 
the way we respond, the way we are divided as church and say, this is what I need. You know what I see today? I just got a report, I just got the, 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 the Barna poll and they've been doing polls with pastors and Christians throughout the pandemic to see what's happening with the church. The Barna organization is a Christian organization and they do a lot of polling about the church. You know what they found? That the millennial generation, which is right around the age of 30 and under, during this pandemic, in the millennial generation of all millennials who were going to church faithfully before the pandemic, fully 50% have stopped going to church and stopped watching church online during the pandemic, 50%. And fully 30, I think it was 34% of all Christians who were faithful to church before the coronavirus hit <clears throat> have stopped not only going to church, but have stopped watching church online. Do you understand now why I fought so hard and, and, and spoke so, so blatantly and boldly about keeping churches open during this? We've lost a third of the church in America during this time. One third. And I, I, I talked with pastors and I almost pleaded with them, don't shut your church down, man. It's not gonna work. Pastors can't fill, pastors can't fill congregations right now. Churches of 12 and 1300, they can't get, they can't fill a 400 seat auditorium in one service right now because people won't come back. And let me say this, let me just address that fact. If you can, if you can feel safe going to the grocery store, if you can feel safe going to Home Depot, if you can feel safe going to the beach, if you can feel safe going to a barbecue, you can feel safe coming to church. We socially distance here, we wear masks, you can feel safe coming to church. You need to be in church. And if you're, if you're one of those people that, has, that is, is at risk right now, you should be watching it on, online. You need to be with your church family. The Bible says, and I'm, I'm off the topic, but I might as well say it, Dad, right? Rabbit trails are good sometimes, right, Dad? Um, the Bible tells us, Paul wrote, that in the end times there will be a great falling away. Risa, losing a third of the church in four months, I think that qualifies as a great falling away, don't you? <laughs> we are seeing the end time prophecies come true. Church, it's time to get back to business. And part of the business is dealing with this matter right here. Racism, is this, is this what the world, the division in the church, white and black and brown being separated, is this what the world will see and say, that's what I need? Absolutely not. As we, racism is a sin and it's a tool used by Satan to divide the church that Jesus gave his life to build. As we approach these, series, this, these sermons on race in the church, I believe that there's three, that it's important that we accept three important truths about ourselves and operate from these admissions. I want to make it very clear and, very, and, and stress it very plainly. These three uh, these, these three truths that I'm about to share, I believe are vital that you accept them and understand them and see them for what they are as we approach this. Because if you don't, then you're not going to learn anything and it's not going to meet, it, the, these series on race in the church isn't going to matter to you at all. The first one is this, you must admit that you do not know what you do not know. It's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us. I've had so many experts on race in the church and they're usually white pastors who have conferences with white pastors. Okay, if you're not, hey, listen, and we're gonna, I'll talk about this in a second. If you're not talking with people of color right now and asking honest questions about their experience and listening to them, then you, you are just being arrogant about your attitude. If you're, if you're taking an attitude of being an expert and you say you know, because you don't know what you don't know. We must admit that we don't know what we don't know about race, race relations, race relations in the church, and what the Bible teaches about our attitudes towards other races as a follower of Jesus. I'll be honest with you right now, I'm listening to people. I'm listening to, to uh, black pastors preach. I'm listening to, I, I've even, I, I told, told him in the first service, I've even started listening to gospel music and it's not my style of music because I want to understand what the, the music we listen to and the music we write and sing is a reflection of how we feel inside. Therefore, gospel music, and same thing with Southern gospel. My parents are Southern gospel fans. Southern gospel music speaks to 
the, a certain kind of people in a certain kind of way. The same thing is you might be a Hillsong fan, you might be a Bethel Music fan, you might be a Michael W. Smith fan. Your worship style reflects you. And I want to understand, I understand the Southern Gospel. That's where I come from. I understand praise and worship music, I understand that. I don't understand gospel music and, and where they're coming from when they sing those songs. I hope that makes sense to you. So I've started listening to it and, and started, started under, trying to understand that perspective. It's not pandering, it's trying to educate myself. And I've, I've started listening to black pastors and I've started having conversations with men of color and learning from them about their experience. That brings us to this, uh, let me say this, to not accept this truth is, is to admit that you're closed-minded to the issue and okay with the status quo, which is pretty horrible. It sets you directly against God and his plan. If you are closed off to admitting or learning about race and the church and thinking there's not a problem, then you're against God's plan because there is a problem. The second thing, is this, and it, it follows right along with what I was just saying. You must accept that people of other races and your own race have different experiences and perspectives than you, uh, than you do when it comes to the treatment from attitudes towards racial, racial issues. We are not all cookie cutters when it comes to the racial understanding of things and to our experiences. Listen, some people, if you grew up here in the hill towns of Massachusetts, it may have been until you started playing high school sports before you saw a person of color. Seriously. If, if you were raised in certain areas, there are things that never confronted you or you never, you never saw. But that doesn't excuse you from learning from other people. and It doesn't excuse the fact that other people have different experiences from you. Understanding that and learning from their experiences and listening to their perspectives about race, especially other Christians. Do you know that I was, I, I, uh, one of our brothers in the church, he told me, he said, uh, he said, Pastor, I never thought I'd hear a message like this in East Long Meadow. If that doesn't speak volumes to you, then I, I, I don't know what to do with that. He said, that's just not what we're used, that, that's, not, that's not what we expect to hear because they're not, they're, they're, they know they're not welcome here. James Baldwin, in a 1961 interview, said this, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all of the time. And part of the rage is this, it isn't, isn't only happening to you but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. See, I, I, don't, I, I don't know, and I'm learning this, but I know in my life, in my experiences, I'll, I'll use our recent, our recent experience with, with Aaron. You may have never been in a situation where I was on Father's Day morning, where I was watching, literally watching my, life, my wife struggle to stay alive. And I when I hung up that phone, I wondered if I had just said goodbye to my wife, literally, for the last time. You may have never been in that situation, but you cannot deny the fact that I had that experience. And if you want to know how it felt, you need to talk to me about it. And you need to listen. If you are not a person of color, if you're a white person, you have no business telling black people how they, and brown people how they feel about being treated in a racist manner. It's time for you to sit and listen and understand. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not your experience to judge from. It's a time for you to listen and learn. And I think that's what frustrates most of the people I talk to is the fact that so many white people will shut you up. Just like I said at the beginning of this message, if I'd have called this white, and I did it first, <laughs> I, it was called, if you look at my, saved on my computer, it says white guilt versus white complicity. And I took that off because I knew how the white people would shut me off. I'm just, I'm, see, I told you I'm the guy for this because I don't really care uh, how people feel about it. Um, and the third one is this, you must commit to applying the principles of the Bible to your view of people of a different race than you. And see, one thing I've learned from watching a lot of uh, uh, pastors of color preach that are bald, 
I've got paper towels up here to wipe the sweat because it's steaming hot up here. <laughs> you must commit to applying the principles of the Bible to your view of people of a different race than you. That, I think, is the big one. You must commit. Be open-minded. Please be open-minded. Don't shut me off just because you don't like what I'm saying. Be open-minded and take the principles of the Word of God and apply them to your view of race and the church. The premise of these messages is not political, and I want that to be very clear. This is not political. This is not about social justice for social justice sake, income equality, or school choice. That's not what these messages are about. Although, if Christians start applying the principles of the Word of God to their relationships with others, we will see social justice in this country. Does that make sense? If we will start living according to the principles of the Word of God, then we will start treating people better and equally. This is not a political message. The premise of this message is that a divided church means a divided message, a divided purpose, and a, and a divided eternity. When we are separated by black and white, our message is not love. Our message is, a divi is divided from the message of grace. When we are separated by black and white, our purpose is not to build the church that Jesus said that he would build in Matthew 16, 18. Our purpose is divided from the express purpose that Jesus gave to his followers. And when we are divided by black and white, people don't see the light of the world. They don't see the salt of the earth. They see hypocrisy and they reject the message of salvation. Seriously, let me, uh, let me just say this. We argue among ourselves as Christians as to, think about this, this should tell you we have a problem. We argue with, amongst ourselves whether Jesus was black or white, right? Right? People are offended because the Middle Ages, they painted Jesus looking like a European male. Most of those guys, let's be honest, there wasn't, there, weren't, there wasn't train service going to Brussels in the 1400s. No planes flew into the Paris airport in the 1500s. They probably didn't see many black people in those days. They were painting from their knowledge. I, I'm not trying to be funny, I'm just being honest. They, they painted what they knew. To, let's, let's just say it, frankly, Jesus was a Jew. He, he looked like a Jew. I don't know what to tell you if you, you know, there should be, it's the silliest thing to argue about, but it's true. We argue, people argue and divide it over whether Jesus was white or black. That's how deep and divisive this is. We can't even agree to accept the fact that he was Jewish. I don't, it just, it's just crazy. They won't see the light of the world if we're divided. They don't see the salt of the earth. They see that hypocrisy and they will reject, reject the message and they die and go to hell. And we are divided from them for eternity. Racism is of Satan. Racism and the division in the church that results from it is sin. The premise of this message is not political. The premise of this message is that of unity. The need to honestly address sin, wickedness, and evil that has been committed in the name of the faith that we claim and do our best to learn a lesson from and move forward toward the unity of all followers of Jesus, no matter what their skin color. That's what this is about. That we will address the things that we see honestly according to the word of God. Change what needs to change in ourselves and start seeing our brothers and sisters of a different color, whether they're white, black, or brown, as our equals in the eyes of Jesus and start treating them that way and start ministering that way. I know it's a long road to travel. I know it's a steep mountain to climb. But ask a white parent who's raising, raising children of color, Risa, you want people to change their attitude? Oh, I sure do. I sure do. I'm tired. I'm fed up. I've told people several times over the last... There, there have been times where the old John's about to come out. I'm 57 years old. 20 years ago, I was a loose cannon at times. And it, was not, it, it, it would not be pretty. I never attacked people, but I defended. Now I feel like somebody needs to be smacked in the head. I'm just being honest, okay? But I haven't done that and I won't, so just move past that. <laughs> Even though 
There are so many things that are just, we just see as obvious in this country. I think the reason I wrote these statistics down from this survey, from these surveys, is because they are so blatantly blind and in denial of the truth. Even though we see everything that's going on, there are still those who insist, after all that has gone over, over the, on the last two to three months over race issues in our country, there are still those who say there is no race problem and that there is definitely not a race problem in the church. Definitely not a race problem in the church. Don't believe me? Listen to some of these statistics. Only two in five white practicing Christians 38, it's not even two and five, we round it up to two and five. It's 38% of white, white practicing Christians in America believe that the United States has a race problem. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. That means 62% of the white population of this country doesn't believe there's a race problem. I, I I'll just move on to the next one because that one baffles me. Three quarters of black practicing Christians, 75%, at least somewhat agree that the U.S. has a history of oppressing minorities. Now listen to this, and I, and I don't know where the other 25% are of, of black Christians because it's just obvious. I mean, what about slavery, you know? While white practicing Christians are less likely to agree that the United States has a history of oppressing minorities, 42%, only 42% of white practicing Christians will admit that America has a history of oppressing minorities. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I, see, this is why I was accused of being smug and angry in the first message. I just, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna grab you by the shirt and slap you around until you, like Elmer Fudd, you know? Come on, man. Three in five white practicing Christians, 61%, take an individualized approach to matters of race, saying these issues largely stem from one's own belief and prejudices, causing them to treat people of other races poorly. Meanwhile, two-thirds of black practicing Christians, 66%, agree that racial discrimination is historically built into our society and institutions. In other words, um, the majority of white people don't believe there is, there is institutionalized systemic racism in our country, while most uh, people of color believe there is institutionalized uh, systemic racism in our culture. I believe there is. I believe that in our culture, it is systemic racism that is built into our culture. Seven in, black, uh, seven in 10 black practicing Christians, 70% report being motivated to address racial injustice. Only about one third of white practicing Christians 35% say the same. White evangelical pastors are far less likely than black evangelical pastors, 39% to 62%, to believe churches should offer sermons that address political topics like race relations. I agree with the political part of that. We don't need to be preaching political sermons. But you don't have, and I'll, I'll say something else here in a minute, but you don't have to be political in preaching about race. You just have to be biblical in preaching about race. You can do it. It just takes effort and an open mind. 34% of pastors surveyed continue to believe the church should not be involved in movements aimed at political change, according to this poll. A majority of pastors, 61%, also said that the current conversations about race are too political. And I'll tell you, as a pastor who talks with pastors, when they say something like that, it is their excuse to ignore the issue. It is their excuse to, it's not that difficult. It is not that difficult. In fact, it's pretty simple. And you'll see as we go through these messages that it's very easy to preach the word of God about race and equality. <clears throat> 42% of white Christians said they believe America's history of slavery and racism continues to impact African Americans. No kidding. I believe that the attention and, and dissension over race that we're seeing today persist in our society today. Can, uh, 
I believe that it's a God-given warning to the church that we must stop playing games, stop being fake, stop giving lip service to division, and start addressing the issue because the church needs full unity now more than ever. Remember what I just said a couple minutes ago? We've lost a third of the church in less than five months. We've lost a third of the church. We cannot afford this foolishness. We cannot afford to continue to be divided. I said it in the first service, I'll say it again. I am committed to doing my best to break down the wall between East Longmeadow and Springfield for people of color. I want, I don't have, I can't force them to come to church here, but I sure can make them, make it known to people of color that there is a church in East Longmeadow that they are welcome to attend if they choose to. And I can sure make them know that they are welcome in our town in this church. I can't speak for everybody out there, but I can speak for people in here. I can speak for, and I can't even speak for everybody in the church, but I sure can lead in a way that helps people understand that we need to be accepting of everybody and be able to be mature enough to see beyond the color of people's skin. <clears throat> the problem with our society today is that we have a short attention span. We move on to the next big thing. And that's happened. I, when, 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 race for the, when the race issue first started hitting the church a couple months ago, man, everybody had, everybody had uh, Zoom meetings, and you could go on and you could watch conversations and roundtables. And usually those roundtables were set up by white pastors talking to white pastors. Listen, that's not, <laughs> if you want to learn, like I said, if you want to learn about race relations, that's not the place to do. That's not the, I, I even listened to one where you talk about tone deaf, and maybe you, maybe you feel differently than me, but they talked about race relations, and at the same time, they brought a police officer on to talk in that round table. It's like, dude, there's nothing wrong with supporting the police. I support the police. But this is not the time to have that conversation. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're talking about race relations. And you talk about tone deaf, and I said that to some, to some of the pastors and didn't get too good of a response. It's not the time. It's not the time, white people, it's not the time to talk about reverse racism. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the time to talk about, well, you know, uh, I, go to, I go to a certain grocery store and I'm the only white person there. Okay, Mr. Privilege. You know, that's exactly what that is. You wonder why they say those things to you? Because that's exactly what it is. It's your white privilege. You think you should be able to go to the grocery store and be the majority. <laughs> that, see? That's it. I, earn, I guess I earned those comments. Now, understanding the division of race in the church starts with the understanding of the roots of the matter. Now, I'm going to define two issues in this message. Currently, they're, be, they're being debated in society today. And I'm going to define them, and, and then we're going to examine them according to the scriptures. They are guilt and complicity. Guilt and complicity. The first one is guilt. What does it mean to be guilty when it comes to racism? It means this, you're actually a racist, <laughs> okay? If you wanna be guilty, if you're guilty of racism, it means you're a racist. What is being a racist? Using language, calling names, supporting people and causes and societal norms and functions that are without question weighted to the side of the white population and the oppression of people of color. That's being, that's being guilty of racism when you're actually out there on the front lines promoting and propagating that kind of thought, you are guilty of racism. When a person of color is perceived as a threat because, they, because and only because they are a person of color, that is racism. When a person of color is perceived as a threat simply because of the color of their skin, that is racism. I will be honest with you, I have lived in East Longmeadow since 1977. Never once have I been followed around town from one edge of the, of the town to the other by a police officer. Never once have I have been pulled over by a police officer in town where, they've, where, where uh, he comes up holding his gun. Never once have I been pulled over riding my bicycle, and I've ridden literally thousands of miles around this town for my teen years until now. Never once have I been pulled over or stopped or questioned by the police. No matter what time of day or night I ride my bike, none, none at all. 
Yet, there are people in this church who have been followed by the police, people of color in this church who have been followed by the police just for driving into the town. There are people of color that have been pulled over by the police for no reason except for being brown or black while driving. And I know I have friends that were pulled over riding 10 speeds in their work uniforms, leaving work, pulled over by the police, guilty of riding a 10 speed in East Long Meadow while being Puerto Rican. No lie, no lie. When a person of color is perceived as a threat simply because of the color of their skin, that is racism. When people of color are not welcome in a town, neighborhood, or church because of their skin color or the excuse they'd be more comfortable with their own kind, that is racism. And what does their own kind even mean? <laughs> They're human beings. No matter what anyone may say, think, or teach, the Bible does not teach, endorse, or excuse slavery, racism, white supremacy, or any type of mentality, symbol, attitude, or action that supports or even hints at racism. God does not support the division of races. He does not. I have to believe that when churches are divided by color simply because they don't feel welcome, it, it hurts the heart of Jesus Christ. He died to bring us all together, not to separate us. His prayer before, a before the, the day, the night before he was crucified, he prayed that we would all be one. Not all be one according to our skin color. He prayed that we would all be one in purpose, united in faith. What does God expect of us? How does he expect us to treat people? In order not to be guilty of racism, it's important that we put into practice in our lives some biblical principles that address these kinds of issues. Here's some verses to tell us how God expects his children to treat and act towards everyone, no matter the color of their skin or the origin of their ancestors. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always, speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Ephesians 4, 29, let no foul language, uh, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Psalm 141, 3, Lord, set, a guard up, uh, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. I think one of the most erroneous statements in the world is sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'm telling you what, words hurt. Words hurt, words have effect. Name-calling has, has an effect on people. My two sons, I'll never know. I'll never know how they feel because I'm not, that I'm not a person of color. I know how it makes me feel when my sons are judged and then said that they act this way because, well, that's what kids like them do. Seriously, man, what are we thinking? And if we're Christians and we're acting this way, we are not showing the love of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. <laughs> In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, says this, The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. When I read this passage, I thought of the, the times that we're living in and the situations we've seen, and that... Those seven things, that one passage in Proverbs reminds me so much of the young man that was chased down by the father and the son in the pickup truck down in Georgia and shot and killed. You read those seven things and apply it to that. Man, that's exactly what God hates. God hates that kind of action. He abhors it. Why? Because it brings division among his people and it drives people away from his grace. And that's not what he wants. What does God want from us? We see it in Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 7. Isn't this the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to unite the ropes of the yoke, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? 
What God wants from us is for us to see people as he sees them, people in need of a savior. And if they're saved, to see a brother or sister in Christ with whom we should unite in purpose and service and ministry. Yet that's not what we see today. And you may not be guilty of racism. You may not be guilty of overt racism. And that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> but are you complicit in racism? And I think this is where the majority of people today fall that, that have a problem with race. And the majority of churches that have a problem with race and refuse to address the situation, I don't believe they're overtly racist, but I believe they're complicit. And listen, according to the law, complicity is a crime. Did you know you can go to jail for being complicit? You can go to jail for being complicit in a crime. So it's a bad thing to be complicit. What does it mean to be complicit? What is complicity? Complicity is association or participation in or as if in a wrongful act. The failure to act or speak against wrongful actions by or towards others. Turning a blind eye to injustice or wrongdoing. Not acting when you have the ability and the capacity to do so. Being complicit is not to stand up when, when you need to stand up. Being complicit is not telling that loudmouth to be quiet when they're picking on those people. Being complicit is to stay with the crowd when they're badgering people of color. Being complicit is to choose a white church so that you don't have to go to church with people of color. Oh, you may not be being overtly racist, but you are expressing an attitude and you're being complicit in the systemic racism that has been there down through the years. When a white person is automatically listened to and believed before a person of color in a confrontation, that is complicity. You say, well, that doesn't happen. I've been talking with Melvin Edwards. Uh, I've met, said this many times in sermons about raising our sons and how to raise them. And Melvin told me this. He said, Pastor John, if there's ever a confrontation between a white man and a black man or a brown man and the police are involved, he said every time the white man will get the opportunity to tell his story first and he will be the one to set the narrative and he will be the one to be believed. And there was a part of me because I didn't know that to be true and I filed that away and I thought, and then he said it to me again after the situation with my boys uh, being called the name that they were called, Michael being called the name he was called, and what happened afterwards. Because the parents came over and, and confronted us about it, and the parents believed their son and said, my boys were the ones that said it. it, it that doesn't even make sense. I mean, if you think about it, they're, first of all, why would they call themselves that? Secondly, we're Puerto Rican, not people of color. There's a whole different slur for Puerto Ricans. And they were raised in East Long Meadow, not in places where they talk like that. But here's what's crazy. The two boys that were involved in that, one of them came back and apologized to my sons. He admitted that they did it. But nobody will believe the situation now. People still believe those two little, boy, two little white boys. They won't believe the brown boys. That's complicity. That's, that's saying that this is okay to treat people that way and to lie about them. It's okay to be racist. That's what you're, that is what they're teaching their son. And that's what the community is reinforcing in these children. And Christians who do this are, rein, if you have an attitude towards people of color that is against the scripture and you don't speak out against it or people have that attitude, your church has that attitude and you don't speak out against it, you're complicit in that act of racism. You're not guilty of it, but you're complicit in allowing it to continue on. When you're comfortable with the fact that your church is segregated, that is complicity. When you do not speak up and speak out and take action to help the cause of those who are oppressed, you are complicit. Like I said, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about speaking out for just, just for general fairness and, and applying the principles of the word of God the way they're supposed to be applied. You may, and here's the, here's the one that I always hear from white people. I never owned slaves, right? How many of you have heard people say that? Well, I never owned slaves. 
Okay, all right, good for you. Um, but that's not an excuse. You may not have owned slaves or committed any act of racism, so you may not be guilty of being racist, but are you guilty of being complicit in the act, spread, and allowance of racism by inaction or intentional ignorance or avoidance? I submit to you that I will prove to you with the next couple scriptures that that is sin. That is sin, and you need to confess it and turn from it and change. And if you are guilty of being complicit, is it wrong? And is, it, and, and is being complicit a sin? Like I said, I'll show you. And next week's sermon is going to be about a parable of the Jesus taught about three men who were complicit. The parable of the Good Samaritan. So yes, there is biblical teaching and biblical basis for complicity being wrong. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I want to take a little bit of license here, because here James is writing in, in James chapter 2, and he's talking about rich people and poor people. What he's really talking about is the attitude we have for people that come into our church. If rich people come into the church, uh, we want them, right? We want the rich folk. Why? Because rich folk have money. And rich folk can give to the church. And boy, we can, we can do all kinds of things. We can, we can build a new building with money. The pastor can get a little bump in a salary with money. We can add all kinds of things with money. But poor people come in, how do you view them? I want to change those two, those, those two descriptives. Rather than it being rich people and poor people, I want to change it to white people and people of color. Is that fair? Because I believe that that's, that's uh, what we're talking about, and I believe the scripture applies there. My brothers and sisters, do not show, this is James 2, verses 1 through 4. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your uh, meeting that is white, dressed in fine clothes, and a person, of color, a person of color also comes in, if you look with favor on the white one and say, sit here in a good place, yet you say to the person of color, stand over there, or sit here on my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's be honest. In many white churches today, if a black person comes in, people say, well, geez, I wonder what they're doing here. Right? That's the way it is. It's not expected. And I've talked to people of color, and that's what they've said. And they feel uncomfortable. And it's the same way. And I'm not going to, in churches of color, there are, uh, when white people come in, you stand out. And, it's, and, and they feel uncomfortable. That shouldn't be. That shouldn't be. There should not be a distinction, whether it's rich or poor, whether it's black or white. There should not be. That is not how we should judge people. And if we do, we're wrong. James goes on to say later in his letter, James chapter 4, verse 17, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. It is sin to know to do what is right and what is good and not to do it. Is complicity a sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Being complicit, not to address these issues. Listen, I've about had enough of it. I've, my sons have had three experiences in the East Longmeadow Public Schools of overt racism, and I've reported. You know how many, you know how many um, meetings I've had with the, the, school, uh, upper, uh, the, the school administration over it? None. You know how many phone calls I've had? None. That's complicity. That's absolute complicity. Listen, when my sons have enough and they smack somebody around for saying those kind of things, guess what's going to happen? My boys are going to be called on the carpet, they're going to be suspended, and people are going to say, that's what those kids are like. You watch. You watch. That's exactly what will happen. I'm tired of the complicity, and it has no place in the church. It has no place in our lives as Christians. We, and here's the thing. We know in our hearts that seeing people with different skin tones as less than equal than us is wrong. We know that. We know, I'm, and I'm going to say this too, and I've, I've already had friends from the South say something to me about this from the message in the first service. If you're clinging to a flag, my friend, and, and trying to excuse 
what the stars and bars, the Confederate flag stands for, and try to say it stands for something other than racism, I get, I've got no respect for your argument. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. When a, when a man, when a, when, and I don't know if you followed the, the Bubba Wallace thing for NASCAR. Do you, honestly, I mean, let's be rational. You're a teacher, right? Let's be rational. Let's be rational. There's one, one man of color that drives in, race car, in a race car in NASCAR. One, one black guy that drives a race car in NASCAR. And a noose just happens to show up in his garage. And we think it's a coincidence. Are you serious? Are you serious? I mean, come on. That is, <laughs> go back to the statistics I quoted and you'll see why that is. I, I, I just, I'm at a loss to understand these kind of things. I truly am. And I'm at a loss to understand why white Christians cling to this kind of attitude. Racial complicity is sin. And next week we'll look at a parable, as I already said, parable of the Good Samaritan that shows us exactly that truth. I really hope <laughs> you'll be back. And I really hope that you'll listen again. And I hope that I can make it home safely. Just kidding. I, I, hope, that, I hope that you've listened. And I hope those of you who watched on Facebook have listened. And you'll at least take the time to hear what is being said. I'm not a person of color. I don't have that experience to draw from, but I'll tell you what I am. I'm a white guy that sees what's going on in white society, and I know. I've told somebody, told a few people that have asked me about this. I said, you know, I don't know if you remember that, that, movie, that TV show that was on a while back. It was about the magician who went on and showed how all the magicians did their tricks. He showed, the, he showed the secret behind. It was like turn, pulling back the curtain on The Wizard of Oz. He showed what went, behind, what went on behind it. I'm that guy because I've heard it all my life. I've heard it all, all my life. I've heard what pastors have said. I've heard what Christians have said. I've heard what white people have said. And that's being brought to bear in this series. So these are not made up. These are true issues. And it's time that we stopped White people, it's time that we stopped complaining about being a minority. <laughs> it's time that we stopped complaining about, uh, about being, being feel, feeling like we are out of place or over, it's just ridiculous to say those kind of things. It's time we start addressing the issue, not politically, but spiritually. And I hope that you'll, you'll continue to join, uh, join us on Sundays for this series. Would, we, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the privilege and the opportunity to preach your word and thank you for being able to be here today. Thank you for those who have been in both services and thank you, Lord, for the freedom you've given. God, as I said, as I closed out the last service, Lord, you and I talk on Saturday nights and we talk about this and we talk about the message and we talk about my emotions. And God, um, I don't ever want my emotions to cloud or take over an issue. But I'm so thankful that you've allowed me to preach this, mes this message with emotion. Because God, I believe it's time that things are heard and things are said and things are addressed and challenged and changed. But Father, I pray that for everyone that has heard this message, whether here in the auditorium or whether watching on Facebook Live, that God, they will not just dismiss this as an angry white guy just trying to pander to people of color but they'll realize that this comes from the heart of a man who is passionately pursuing you and wants to see what's right and good and true according to your word done and brought to bear. Father, would you, would you open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the truth of what's going on and would you bring true unity to your church? God, we're in a situation, I, I was just floored when I saw those statistics of how many people have even stopped watching God. They've just stopped watching church. We've lost a third. God, would you please shore up the ones who have stayed and turn back the ones who have walked away. This is the time for unity. This is the time for standing strong. This is the time for being a united front. And God, would you heal your church? 
Once again, thank you for bringing my wife home and bringing my family back together. Thank you for all who prayed, God, for all who continue to pray. Would you bless us throughout this day and throughout this week? And may we, as much as we can, I know it's so difficult now with everything that's in place, but as much as we can, when may we shine your light to this world, to this community, Lord. It's in your precious holy name we pray. Amen.